Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a teaching series called In the Wilderness, a study in the book of Numbers. We're learning how to live with courage and faithfulness on the journey through the wilderness. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, church family. My name is Luke. I get to lead our high school ministry. For those of you gathered here, for those of you worshiping at home online, so good to be at the church together this morning. We're walking through a series in the book of Numbers. And so we're going to continue to do that this morning. Uh, One of my favorite characterizations of the Christian life comes from the author and pastor Eugene Peterson. He describes discipleship as a long obedience in the same direction. And what I love about that is how it it captures what uh, the spiritual journey is all about, this steady consistent, compounded faithfulness over time. And there's a film that came out recently uh, that I love that speaks to you, that portrays this kind of quiet faithfulness, a a life lived faithfully in the hidden places. It's called A Hidden Life. Uh, It's by the director, Terrence Malick, and it follows the true story of an Austrian farmer who lives in the Austrian Alps during World War II by the name of Franz Jagerstadter. And France lives in this quiet, humble, meager village. It's not the kind of place where they experience much of the happenings of the world around them. And yet, during the conflict of World War II, uh, the Nazis take over this place and uh, the villagers, all the men in the village, are told by the Nazis that they have to swear an oath. that They have to uh, make a pledge of loyalty to Hitler and to the Nazis. Now, most of the people in this village are are Christians. They worship in the church. And yet, although they have a principle that would keep them opposed to this kind of allegiance, uh, the whole village decides to take the path of least resistance and make the pledge. All of them except for Franz Jagerstadter. Franz is the only one who was a holdout, who refuses to give his allegiance to uh, Hitler and to the Nazi party. Now, he has a wife. He's got a few daughters, his mother, all his neighbors, even the priest, the people in his church. Everyone is just perplexed by this decision. They can't seem to wrap their minds around why, when something is so simple, would you take such a costly path of resistance, of fidelity to your principles and your conviction, when it is so small an act to simply take the oath? And so everyone in the village, this whole community around him, his family, his neighbors, even the church, everyone seems to think that this small act of resistance is ultimately inconsequential. In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter much. But Franz feels and thinks differently. He sees this small act of obedience as the crucible for faithfulness. And so the film ends, it fades to black with this quote on screen that I want to read for you. It sort of characterizes and sums up what the movie is all about. It's by uh, the writer Marian Evans. She wrote under the pen name George Eliot, and she said this. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been, is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. So this morning, 
I want to call us to this kind of faithfulness. I want us to begin in our story by asking a simple question. If you're following your notes, I've put it this way. How do we become faithful people? How do we live the kind of life of fidelity that Jesus is calling us to? So in the scriptures, we're going to be in Numbers chapter 20. And in Numbers chapter 20, I'm going to read the first few verses for us to sort of uh, thrust us into the story. And then I'll back up and I'll give us some context to fill in the gaps as to what's going on. But this is Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 5. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There, Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron, they quarreled with Moses and they said, if only we had died when our, uh, uh, when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water here to drink. So pause here, okay? This is the first month of their 40th year in the wilderness. Now, if you can recall back in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 13, they've, uh, they're leaving Sinai and they're about to go into the promised land and Moses, the leaders, they send out some people to scout the land ahead of them. And they come back and they say, well, there is abundance there. Like you wouldn't even believe. And they come back with all this fruit and they say, oh, this is incredible. But there's some real big people over there and they're not very friendly. And I don't think we can do it. And so 10 of the 12 spies, they bring us bad report. The people, they rebel against Moses. They say, God's not going to be able to to bring us into that. We can't do this. And so as a result of of their rebellion and their faithlessness, God gives them this consequence that they're going to wander for 40 years. And then everyone 20 years in order, that whole generation who rebelled uh, at Sinai, they're not going to enter into the promised land. Canaan is going to be withheld from them because of their faithlessness. So now here we are, 40 years later, Israel is like knocking on the door of Canaan. Okay, I mean, they're right on the cusp. This is a a significant transitional moment in the life of the community. I mean, they're ready. The 40 years are at an end. This is the final year. And have they learned faithfulness in that 40-year time? It doesn't seem like it, does it? After 40 years of wandering, the people of Israel are still just as faithless as their forefathers were. If you're following your notes, I put it this way, that Israel recapitulates, meaning they they relive, they reenact, they step into the story. They recapitulate the sin of their forefathers rather than repenting of the generational sin that got them where they are today. They look at this moment in the wilderness and they go, Moses, this is your fault. Rather than saying, this is my father's fault and this is my fault, they step into the same pattern, the same habit of sin and faithlessness that their forefathers, their ancestors had walked in 40 years earlier. It's like they've learned they have not been formed into a faithful people. They've been formed all this time into a faithless people. And the irony of their faithlessness is made especially clear in in verse 5. There's something striking about this. In verse 5, they say, why'd you bring us up uh, out out of Egypt to this terrible place? They say it's got no grains, got no figs, no no grapevines, no pomegranates, no water. And what's striking to me about this is that back in Numbers chapter 13, when the the scouts, they they come back with all this abundance, right? 
they're carrying some things with them. And the things it says that they're carrying in Numbers 13 are figs and grapes and pomegranates. Like the people don't even see that the very reason they don't have the things that they want is because of prior faithlessness. Instead, they want to uh, project all of this uh, opposition. They want to project all this failure onto Moses instead of owning it for themselves. They've been formed into a faithless people again and again and again and again. And I say again and again and again and again because this is their de facto pattern time and time again in the book of Numbers. In fact, if you're following in your notes, this is Israel's sixth rebellion against Moses in the wilderness. There's a bunch of other examples of this. And this is fascinating to me because the, the, the structure of numbers, I think, actually wants to tell us something. There's a message in the arrangement of these narratives. See, the book of Numbers records seven rebellions in the span of 40 years since leaving Sinai. And so this is a sort of uh, twilight zone, if you're familiar with Stranger Things, right? It's like the upside-down version of what these numbers typically represent in the Bible, if you're familiar with some of the significance, the symbolism of numbers in the Old Testament, 40 is usually a number associated with preparation and purification. Yet in 40 years' time, the people have become degraded and polluted. This is a de-evolution in the book of Numbers. And seven is usually a number associated with uh, completion, with perfection. And yet in the book of Numbers, seven rebellions we're taught through the narrative and the way it's laid out that seven here is a sign of the people's complete imperfection. They could have gone this way. They could have been formed in 40 years through this journey into a faithful people. Instead, they've been formed continually by, by habit, by practice into a faithless people. They have squandered this time in the wilderness where they could have become the people of fidelity that God had called them to be. And so by the time you get towards the back end of numbers, like, like where we are now, we are sort of primed by the very structure of the book to know that we ought to anticipate a greater deliverance yet still for God's people. If you're following in your notes, Israel needs a true and better exodus. They may be, by, by geographic proximity, closer to God's rest, but they are no closer to actual spiritual rest as God's people in his presence. They've moved their bodies, but their hearts, their souls have still run from God. 40 years formed into a faithless people. Now let this be a sign to us in the church. How many years have you, have you spent in the church? Maybe short, maybe long. Man, some of us, we've been in the church. Maybe you've been in the church 40 years. Has this been a time of refinement for your soul? Have you learned fidelity to the way of Jesus? Have you been purified and prepared for life in the presence of God to experience that great rest? Or have we squandered our journey? Are we not giving significance to the years and the life and the body of Christ that we've been gifted to be refined and purified and called into faithfulness? None of us are going to wander into spiritual maturity and into the rest that God has for us. You don't drift towards spiritual maturity. It's a long obedience in the same direction. And so uh, my question is, none of us are there yet, but are we on the path? Are we moving towards faithfulness to Jesus in all of life, giving ourselves fully to Jesus, to his mission? Faithfulness 
is formed in the crucible of these small decisions, small choices, small actions, where we decide to give ourselves fully to who Jesus is. So you can imagine after 40 years, just the frustration that Moses might've felt with these people. I mean, come on, 40 years you've been at this. And this is what Moses has to show for. I mean, as a leader, he's gotta be just so frustrated with where the people are at, with who they are at this point in time. And so most of the rest of the narrative of Numbers chapter 20 uh, portrays for us the way that Moses responds to this sixth crisis. Let me continue reading for you in verse six. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and they fell face down and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together, speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and he struck the rock twice with his staff and water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he was proved holy among them. Now, chapter 20 of Numbers goes on to record for us uh, the death of Aaron in response to what God had prophesied. And then in the book of Deuteronomy, we can read the account of the death of Moses, also in this 40th year in response to what God has said here in Numbers 12. So it's, it's hard for me to, to go to this chapter and see anything but tragedy. And Miriam, Aaron, Moses, all of them gone in the 40th year. The leaders of the people, they, each one of them at some point or another has this moment of failure and none of them get to experience the rest that God has promised. A whole generation lost in the wilderness and their kids just as faithless as their fathers before them, even when they're on the cusp of entering into the land. I mean, oh, this is, this is painful to read. What a tragic story. And for Moses in particular, I mean, man, he was somebody who seemed to have like a near perfect life. None of us is perfect, but if there was somebody you'd say was close, Moses might rank pretty high up there on the list. And so for Moses, I mean, this is like, he's crashing into the wall and the last laugh of the Daytona 500, right? I mean, he's going like heels over handlebars, the, the final stretch of the Tour de France. He is, he is blowing it, blowing a perfect game in the last inning. This is Moses' kind of, kind of crash and burn moment. It's, it's really sad to watch, especially for somebody who had just this incredible life of faithfulness. I mean, really an incredible relationship with God. In Numbers 12, verses 6 through 8, there's a scripture here where God says something incredible about Moses. Listen to this. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams but this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak face to face 
clearly, not on riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. That's pretty special. Moses was somebody who was faithful, lived a life of faithfulness. And so his whole life, his service to the Lord, his vocation, it's not negated or forgotten by God. But this is a, a small, yet significant and costly mistake in the end game. And so Moses is going to bear a consequence for that. And along with him, Aaron, we don't know the, the exact details, but it seems that Aaron has some complicity. Uh, he bears some of the guilt for this action that Moses uh, takes as leaders of this covenant community. So let's look back at the story and ask the question that just pains me and probably pains you too. What went wrong here? I mean, what exactly did Moses do that was so bad? What's the big deal about this whole thing, right? So I try to make this just abundantly clear for us, okay? There's, there's what God commands, and then there's what Moses does. If you're following your notes, I put it this way. Here's what God commands. Take the staff, assemble the people, and speak to the rock. Pretty simple. You can do that. Take the staff, gather the people, go talk to that rock. And so Moses, I mean, this is not a hard command to follow. In light of some of the other incredible miracles he'd been a part of, maybe this one even seems a tad minor. I don't know. But I think Moses has an emotional life, a, a process. He's having a little bit of trouble regulating what might be going on internally. So Moses does something a little bit different. Here's what Moses does. Take the staff, assemble the people, all good so far, rebuke the people, and strike the rock twice for good measure. Moses decides he's going to add in a little bit of Moses flavor to the way this miracle gets done. And I can't help but read this and think, oh, this is a little bit of a... Uh, uh, powering up, a, a show of force. He's going he's gonna to tell the people what he really thinks. He says, listen, you rebels. And he rebukes somebody, hits the rock, right? It's sort of a muscling up. Now, if you're a boss, manager, parent, coach, administrator, whatever, you know what's going on here because you have always wanted to do this. You've always wanted to tell that person, that class, that group of people, whatever. You wanted to take their opinion, their policy, and tell them what you really think and give them a piece of your mind. And Moses, he kind of enters into this space, right? Just once, you want to do this too. Let go of that need to be professional, to be the bigger person, you know, to, to do the right thing, and just once to let them have it. And this is what Moses has the same kind of temptation that we have. And gosh, today in our you know, social media world, I mean, we have more access, more desire, uh, more examples of how to do this, to tell people off, tell them we're up to here, we've had it. Well, man, we have more capacity for that today than ever, I think. So Moses enters into, I, I think, this temptation, right? It's a little bit of conjecture. I don't know exactly what's going on in Moses' mind, but it seems to fit with the text that Moses takes the situation into his own hands because he's fed up after 40 years of sixth rebellion. You've got to be kidding me, Israel. He takes this into his own hands and he does things subtly, but significantly different than how God would do that. Now that is a big problem for a prophet. Here's how we got to understand this, right? You're following your notes. Moses is God's mediator to the people, his authoritative representative. He's the one who stands in the gap 
And so when Israel wants to know who God is and what God is like, they're supposed to look at Moses. He has that kind of role, that kind of authority, that kind of responsibility. So when, when Moses comes to do this miracle, comes to gather the people, he's, he, he's carrying the staff that represents the authority given to him by God. And then he goes and he does his own thing. Instead of saying exactly what God wants him to say, doing exactly what God wants him to do, it undermines the whole prophetic office. I mean, it like cuts the legs out from underneath the authority. And so God's looking at Moses like, that small little thing you did, that matters quite a bit to me. You represent me. You're supposed to show me as holy in the sight of the people. Instead of seeing me, they saw a little bit of Moses, didn't they? And this is the big problem with Moses' sin here. This is why God responds to him and to Aaron and says, that, that wasn't it. You didn't do what I was asking you to do. Read with me one more time in uh, verse 12 here. This is what God says. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. It's a harsh response. And even after everything I've said, maybe there's still a part of you like me that's like, oh, but come on, God. Cut the guy some slack. Give him a break after all he's done. What is the big deal? So let me try to paint this picture for you. Imagine that you wanted to hop on board a flight. You wanted to take a plane from LAX to JFK, New York. Now, if you were going to hop on board a plane, you'd want a pilot who is uh, precise, who is meticulous in his navigation, who cares about the heading of his compass quite a bit. Now, suppose that you get on this flight, uh, this flight and, and the pilot, you get a pilot who's a little careless. He's, he's not quite as meticulous, not quite as precise in the heading of the compass, the navigation. I mean, if you're slightly off, what's the big deal? You'll get there when you get there, no problem. But the thing is, if you hopped on board that plane to get from LAX to JFK, you need to fly at a heading of 66 degrees east-northeast. Now, if you've got a pilot who's a little careless and say he sets the compass to 69 degrees east-northeast, that's his heading. You might think, oh, what's the big deal? That's a three-degree difference. The grand scheme of things, who cares? That's about a six-foot difference in the angle of the nose of that airplane at takeoff. But you'd be in for quite a shock when you got off the plane because you'd touch down, uh, get off the plane, deplane, taxi on the runway, and you'd be looking around at your surroundings and it wouldn't take you long to realize you're at Reagan International Airport in DC, 200 miles south. And all of a sudden you might realize that a slight little difference, an imprecise measurement, a slight miscalculation matters quite a bit in the grand scheme of things. Now, let me ask you if precise alignment is crucial in the vocation of an airline pilot. How critical is it in the vocation of a prophet? More than that, how crucial is the vocation and our alignment in that vocation for just being human as an image bearer? We have a human vocation. How crucial is it? that we align ourselves, that we are faithful in even the small things. How much might the small things determine our trajectory in the long term? How serious of a deal is it that we be faithful in everything that we are given? Now, there's some of us, I mean, 
maybe you kind of feel like Israel. If you were to reflect on your life, you might look back over the span of however many years and you could accurately kind of say, I haven't lived a very faithful life. I've been, I've been kind of faithless. I've squandered uh, the time that God has given me to be formed into a faithful person. I haven't very, taken very seriously obedience in the small stuff. I've left these kind of uh, sectors of my life, these spheres of my obedience untouched by the formation of Jesus. Maybe you could characterize your life like that. There's others, others of us who, who maybe you'd say, I've, I've really tried. I mean, I've, I've given myself as fully as I can. I, I've tried to be like Moses. I've tried to just dedicate myself wholly to the way of Jesus, to be formed inside and out in every fiber of my being to reflect who God is and what he's called me to. But still, you experience the failures that all of us do. Even like Moses, you're not perfect. You mess it up. You stray to the right, to the left. You've got that little thing that nags that you can't quite get over. You've got something in you that still is imperfective, that still is lacking the faithfulness that God has called you to. So whether you feel like, man, I've totally blown it like Israel, or I've tried, but I'm still not who I want to be like Moses, I want to proclaim to you that Jesus became who Moses never could be to do for Israel what they could never do for themselves. And God wants to be for you what he was for Moses and what he was for Israel. He wants to be your faithfulness when you're a faithless kind of person. God wants to stand in the gap for you. He wants to be your mediator. He wants to lead you into the promised rest. He wants to quench your thirst in the wilderness. He wants to guide you in the journey. He wants to form you into his own image as a faithful person in all your life. There's two ways that I see Jesus all over the place in this text. The first thing, if you're following in your notes, Jesus is the true and better Moses who faithfully leads us into God's rest. Moses is God's appointed ambassador. He's the mediator. He's the one who stands in the gap. He's got authority. He's got responsibility. It's his vocation. And Jesus does it fully. <laughs> He fulfills what is lacking in Moses' prophetic vocation. He lives the life of complete faithfulness that you could never live on your best day. He passes through the Jordan River. He goes ahead of us into the land of God's rest and promise. He gets the foretaste, the first glimpse of the kingdom of God, and he calls us to join him there. He lives the life of faithfulness, goes ahead of us and says, hey, come with me into this land. Jesus does what we can never do as Moses. And secondly, in your notes, Jesus is the true and better rock that was struck. It quenches our thirsty souls. When Israel's dying of thirst in the wilderness, Jesus becomes the stone. Now, Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians. He says, hey, you remember that rock? He references the story. You remember that rock the Israelites had and it, it gave them water when they were in the wilderness at Kadesh? Paul says that rock was Christ. He's saying, look, God takes the very source of their parched bodies, this rocky wasteland, and he makes it the source of their quenching. These rejected stones become the cornerstone, and that rock was Christ. He fills up all that is lacking in your body and soul. He refreshes your spirit. He gives you life in the wilderness when you could not give it to yourself. Jesus is the rock that was struck for you. So Jesus became what Moses never could be to be for you and me what we can never be for ourselves. He is the faithful one, even when we are faithless. 
So this morning, in view of God's mercy in Christ Jesus, I want to call us into the life of faithfulness, the vocation to give ourselves, even in the small things, to the way of Jesus, to be formed in his image, wholly and fully. And some of you feel like you're never going to get there. Like maybe you're just way off base, way off the mark. And same here. Each and every one of us is lacking in the faithfulness that belongs to Jesus, but he has called us to it anyways. And he has given us all the grace that we need to become who he has destined us to be as his people. Professional athletes, they train and they get better through applying something called the aggregation of marginal gains. Some of you may know this term. It just means getting like 1% better at a little thing each day. And all these little things, as you get better at them, they, they cumulatively have this effect. They add up to something substantial so that you were developed uh, and formed over time as somebody who's great at all these things, all these aspects of who you are and your role and the tasks and the things that you do, the, the stuff you give yourself to. You get better as a whole. If you just get a little bit better here today and a little bit better here tomorrow. Right? It's, it's like eating the elephant one bite at a time, paying attention to the small stuff. And the sum of such attention to the little things amounts to this significant formation overall. So if you want to get better at prayer, you don't have to spend an hour tomorrow in prayer. Great if you do. Spend five minutes. If you want to get better at generosity and hospitality, you don't have to give away your life savings tomorrow. Maybe tip the server at your next restaurant a little bit better than you have in the past and do that repeatedly. Maybe you want to get better at, at knowing what's going on in the world and how you can be a part of justice and understanding history. And I would love for you to change the world like that. Start and go spend 30 minutes at the public library. Like read, learn, educate, be formed. Do the small things again and again and again so that you will become, over time, a faithful person because it's the small moments, the small temptations, the small choices, the small sacrifices, the small kindness, the small courage. It's the small stuff that is the crucible for a faithful life that is hammering you out, shaping you, forming you into the way of Jesus to reflect who he is as mediators in the world. And when you believe this, you understand then that there really is no such thing as a small act of obedience and that a faithful life, however obscure or hidden, is the most significant thing in the world. Jesus is calling you to this this morning. Where in your life do you need to give yourself, even if it's this big, to the way of Jesus? Would you pray with me? Father God, you alone are faithful. You fill up all that is lacking in us. You sustain us and nourish us in our wilderness. You guide us into the rest that you have promised for us. You go ahead of us through the resurrection of Jesus to stake out a claim in the land that is ours in Christ Jesus. Oh God, quench our thirsty souls. God, mediate for us. Show us the way forward. You have called us, Lord. Give us ears that hear you. Like sheep who respond to the shepherd's voice, let us follow you in obedience for a life of faithfulness. 
all these things, Lord, we entrust to you and we ask in the name that is above every name with your power, you will do it. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.